the work of your Holy Spirit to be work, at work in our hearts, to be opening our eyes and opening our ears to see wonderful things in your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my old seminary professors has a great signature line at the bottom of his emails. Listen to it. No man can be without his God. If he have not the true God to bless and sustain him, he will have some false God to delude and betray him. He even gives the source. That's from Richard Chevenick's Trench in a book called Sermons Preached in Westminster Abbey, published in 1860 on page 252. Now, this seminary professor, he is the type of guy who would actually read to page 252 of such a book. And I'm glad that he did, because it very poetically reminds us that every single person has a God. Even the strongest atheists have a God. For they have something that they worship, something that they honor, revere, love, seek enjoyment in, blessing from. There is always something or somebody who is the king of the mountain in our hearts. That is our God, which is why everybody is inescapably religious and worships somebody or something. The question is, well, is it the true God or is it a false God? And that's what we're going to be looking at today in John chapter 4. So turn with me to John chapter 4 and let me orient you to the the landscape of the the book. John chapter 4 comes near the end of a unit within the book of John, uh, chapters 2 through 4. John chapter 2, if you look back at the subheadings, begins with Jesus turning water into wine. 2.11 says, It was the first of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 4 ends when Jesus heals an official son who is on the verge of death. And it says this in 4.54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. So John has intentionally set these bookends to make John chapter 2 through John chapter 4, a distinct section. And that's how John arranges his material within these three chapters. Uh, Do you have my first slide? You don't? No slides? Okay. Never mind. Skip the slides. John chapter 2 has two main events. Uh, Jesus turns water into wine in the first half, and in the second half, Jesus cleanses the temple where he drives out the money changers and the sellers. And when challenged, he speaks cryptically of his own body and death. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, here's the cool part. The first part of chapter 2, changing water to wine, is further explained in all of chapter 3. Next time you read through the book of John, take some time. And you'll notice how many connections there are between John 2, 1 through 12 and all of John chapter 3. It's pretty amazing and it's no accident. But we don't have time to get into all that right now. But you can probably guess what I'm going to say next. The second half of John 2, verses 13 through 25, where Jesus cleanses the temple, is further explained in John chapter 4, the bulk of which we'll be looking at this morning. 
So when Jesus cleanses the temple in chapter 2, we can expect to find some answers as to how we are to worship God in chapter 4 when Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. But not only that, John wants us to compare and contrast John chapter 3 with John chapter 4. For in John chapter 3, which Pastor Trey preached on in April, I believe, we have an encounter. Jesus encounters a man named Nicodemus, who's religious, Jewish, who comes seeking Jesus at night. In John chapter 4, we have an anonymous woman who is a Samaritan, ill repute, who stumbles upon Jesus in the middle of day in broad daylight. They are polar opposites of each other. And as one preacher put it, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3 shows us that nobody is beyond the need of Jesus as their Savior. And the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 shows us that nobody is beyond the reach of Jesus as their Savior. But now that I've finally oriented you to where we are in the book of John, let's dive into John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the whole... Oh, there's my slides. Great. Uh, you can go into maybe two or three more ahead. This is the extent of my artistic ability, by the way. All right, you can go to the next slide. All right, I won't worry about it. So in John 4, 1 through 6, uh, we find the setup for the action that is going to take place. Jesus, presumably still wanting to keep a low profile, is on his way back to Galilee, and he has to pass through the hostile territory of Samaria. Now, Samaritans were considered half-breeds, and they worshipped a false god. About 700 years before Jesus' time, the Assyrians had came, had come and taken away the people in uh, Samaria and took them into exile and replaced most of them with people from other places, and they intermarried. They even rejected most of the Old Testament. They only kept the Pentateuch, the first five books, but they changed it. Anything that referred to Jerusalem was changed to Gerizim, and Shechem is emphasized. So they only accept part of the Old Testament, and what they do accept, they've changed. In addition to that, they built their own temple to worship at Gerizim. About a hundred years before Jesus' time, some Jews actually went there and destroyed their temple. All right? So this is not a mere rivalry between Cisna Park and Milford. Real blood had been shed over the issue of where people ought to worship, at this place or at this place. There were centuries of bad blood between Samaritans and Jews. Uh, and Jesus finds himself alone at the well. Well, almost alone, because a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And here her status is hinted at. The sixth hour is noon, and typically those who are drawing water would do so in the cooler parts of the day. But this woman has to do it alone, at least in part because of her low status in society. Jesus says in verse 7, Give me a drink. And this is not typical behavior for a Jewish man alone with a woman. Oh, don't show that till the end. Don't show that slide till the end. You can go to a blank screen now if you want. (laughs) 
Give me a drink, Jesus says in verse 7. Now the woman, she could have done any number of things. She could have given him a drink and not said anything. She could have ignored him. And I think that would have been completely acceptable between a man and a woman, a Jew and Samaritan. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus gives her an answer. And in this answer, he raises two questions, both of which occupy a present passage. But you could argue the whole book of John and perhaps even the whole Bible. Jesus says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the two main questions that Jesus raises are, Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus, this man at the well? And secondly, what is the gift of God? What is this living water? But the woman seems stuck on thinking about physical water and the sustenance it gives. After Jesus promises a water that not only eternally satisfies, but even becomes a well-producing more water within us, she simply wants to avoid physical thirst and the chore, as arduous as it is, of drawing water. In verse 15, she says, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus responds like this in verse 16. Go call your husband and come here. At first sight, this seems a bit abrupt. And I'm left wondering, where in the world did that come from? They were talking about water and drinking. But there's at least two reasons why Jesus asked this question here. Uh, and I'll talk about the first one now and the second one later. First of all, think about uh, what I like to call stereotypical well scenes in the Bible. Right? Now, uh, Jesus, who was a Jew, and this Samaritan woman, they were aware of similar types of stereotypical well scenes that had happened in the past. Uh, just like in an action movie, we know all action movies have a, a chase, a car chase scene, right? Uh, and all romance movies have a profession of love scene. Well, in the Bible, there are well scenes. Think about it. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham's servant is taken to Laban's household uh, by Rebekah after they meet at a well. Jacob himself, who's mentioned earlier in this passage... In Genesis 29, is also taken to Laban's household by Rachel after meeting at a well. Moses, in Exodus chapter 2, is taken to the priest of Midian by his daughters after they meet at a well. Now, of course, these all examples came from the Pentateuch, which the Samaritan woman and both Jesus would have recognized as authoritative. So there was a pattern of people meeting at a well, and the pattern was this, was that Jesus should have gone to her household. Instead of, well, hey, let's go to your father's household, Jesus turns the table and says, call your husband and come here. Jesus has hit on a spot in her life that goes beyond the surface the physical aspects of life like thirst. And it's inter interesting because the Samaritan woman was uh, 
not a prostitute. We see that she's of low status. She came to get water in the heat of day instead of in the morning with the other woman. It specifically says that she had had five husbands. Keep in mind that at this time, uh, a woman had to be attached to a man uh, in some way in order to survive. And this type of thing is common in polygamous societies. Uh, Women could be sent away from marriages for any number of reasons, including uh, barrenness, uh, conflict with the mother-in-law. And once a woman is sent away, uh, what man wants a woman who's been sent away from another man, even twice, three times? You get the picture. Maybe she was widowed, but surely not five times. So is it so hard to see why this woman would be with a man who is not her husband? Back then, she's not worth marrying at this point. But we aren't given enough details to really figure out exactly all that was happening in these relationships, who was mostly at fault or mostly to blame. But Jesus is is digging deeper into her heart, digging into a need much deeper than physical thirst. He's hit on something that has brought shame and pain that comes from five ruined marriages and now living with a man that she shouldn't be. It's exactly why she has to come to get water at noon when nobody else does. Well, when Jesus miraculously knows her past, sees it into her heart, she perceives that Jesus is a prophet. He's pinpointed some specifics in her life. And she switches to what is typically a conversation stopper between Jews and Samaritans. She raises an argument that had been argued for centuries between the Jews and Samaritans. She wants to hide, in a sense, from this prophet who can see into the sensitive parts of her heart and her life. In verse 20, she says, Well, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, where they were at the well, they could probably actually see Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped. Of course, with Jesus, it's not a conversation stopper. He shows where all the religious experts have been dead wrong. In verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, it's impossible to see in English, but when Jesus says, you, uh, you will worship the Father, he is saying, you plural, you Samaritans, as in, you all Samaritans will worship the Father. But it won't be on this mountain, and it won't be in Jerusalem. But what needs to change for the Samaritans in order to worship the Father? What needs to change is this, in part, their knowledge. Verse 22 says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Right knowledge of God is necessary. The Samaritans worshipped what they didn't know. They had their own version of who God was and what he was like, different from what was revealed in the scriptures. Their facts about God were wrong. 
Salvation is from the Jews, and so the God of the Jewish Old Testament is the true God, and we must have these true facts about God. But that only fixes part of the problem. Lots of Jews knew the Old Testament, but they weren't worshiping God in spirit and truth. Even think back to John chapter 3, Nicodemus himself, a teacher of Israel, and he didn't understand these things. Now, maybe later in the book of John, maybe he did, but he certainly didn't when he first encountered uh, Jesus. Jesus says we must worship the Father in spirit and truth, which includes having truth about God as given to us in the Old Testament. But what else is Jesus getting at when he says we must worship the Father in spirit and truth? Well, at the very least, it means that worship isn't tied to a physical location, which is why we can go meet as a church at the Kaufman Timber in July. And for us, that's not something we really struggle with, but for them, that was a major change. A new hour had come. Yes, God had specially chosen his people Israel and a few Gentiles like Rahab and others found their way into the chosen people. But for centuries, God had focused on the Jews. But God had also promised that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations, not just Jews. And so now the time had finally come when God would keep his promise to bless all nations. That hour had finally come. So, in the very least, worshiping in spirit and truth means that we're not restricted to a certain location like a temple. And we're going to see more later in the passage what it means to worship in spirit and truth. But for now, notice, the woman didn't really seem to understand what Jesus was saying. Again, probably trying to dodge the real issues. She goes on and basically says, look, when the Messiah gets here, he'll tell us, we'll figure it out. When the Messiah gets here, we'll see. And so finally, this question is, who is Jesus, is addressed in Jesus' own words. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the anointed one who would bring about God's salvation and fulfill all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament. But just then, in John chapter 4, The disciples come back to Jesus, and the woman leaves. And this sets the stage for the second half of our passage, which we'll uh, move through much more quickly. Like the woman who was previously stuck on physical thirst, the disciples are stuck on physical hunger. Based on the woman's testimony, people, Samaritans, are coming out of the city to see Jesus, it says in verse 30. Jesus teaches the disciples that, look, the harvest time is now. God's word has been sowed, and now there's a a, a reaping taking place. Typically, there's a gap between sowing and harvesting. But among Samaritans, even, it's taking place right in front of their eyes. In verse 38, it says that others have labored, and the disciples have entered into their labor. And the labor that Jesus is talking about is most likely the ministry of John the Baptist, and the prophets before him who sowed God's truth. And now the disciples, and now us, have entered into that labor, and there is indeed a harvest taking place. So if that's our task, to enter into the labor of the harvest, you have to ask, well, how do these Samaritans change from worshiping what they don't know 
to being ready for the harvest and believing in Jesus. How does that change take place? Verses 40 and 41 tell us how this miraculous change takes place. It says, Jesus stayed with them for two days, and many more believed because of his word. They even said, We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So this is how this miraculous change takes place in the Samaritan's life. They spent time with Jesus, and they heard his word. It's incredibly simple, and there's not a substitute for it. Being with Jesus and hearing his word. That's how the seemingly impossible to save Samaritans changed from worshiping what they didn't know to believing and knowing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And here is where we're going to see what it means to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Earlier, he told the woman that they would be worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. And then here, that is described at uh, the end of our pass- passage. Worshiping the Father in spirit and truth is believing in Jesus as the Savior of the world. That is what it means to worship the Father in spirit and truth, as described by John's own words in John chapter 4. Uh, you can put up that last slide with the outline of our passage. All right. <clears throat> so thankfully, this didn't include any artwork. But here you see the the passage of Jesus with the Samaritans broken into two parts. The first part that Dan read is Jesus and the woman. And the second part is Jesus with the disciples. And you see that they're parallel. They both start with a setup. All right. Part two, we have water and eternal life. And then we have food and eternal life. Then at the end, the topic is salvation and worship. And then salvation and worship parallel. Uh, where the Samaritans believe. Now, when a biblical author writes something with a parallel structure, they are explaining the same thing, but with different words. Jesus says that the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth, and then the Samaritans do just that in verses 39 through 45, which is described as believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There is no true spiritual worship without Jesus. And it only comes from spending time with Jesus and hearing his word. Now at this point you might be thinking, well I thought there were two main questions raised in this passage. First of all, who is Jesus? Well we covered that. He's the Messiah, the Savior of the world in whom we must believe. But what is this gift of God? What is this gift of God, this water that satisfies our thirst forever? Well, later in the book of John, it tells us explicitly. In John 7, verses 37 and following, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me out of his heart uh, will flow living water. And then John tells us, this was the Holy Spirit. So it's specifically defined as the Holy Spirit, and we come to Jesus to drink, which is parallel to believing in Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit, it gives us a new heart, a new life. It causes us to be born again in the language of John 3, and it shows itself through new appetites, 
new thirsts, new hungers within our hearts. Because even the best wells of water don't satisfy for long. So consider what you thirst for. What is it that you worship? And don't think about church buildings or music specifically. Think about what your heart is drawn to. What makes you rejoice? What makes you sad? Angry? What elicits an emotional reaction from your heart? Because remember, no man can be without his God. If he have not the true God to bless and sustain him, he will have some false God to delude and betray him. When we worship in spirit and truth, God has given us new appetites that rearrange our hungers and thirsts. Now we're still tempted to be controlled by the praise of others, for example. We're still tempted to find solace in financial security, for example. We're still tempted to escape into constant busyness or talk about trivial things like sports or the news, for example. But none of these things should be highest in our hearts. When we are worshiping the Father in spirit and truth, we are seeking the satisfaction of the thirsts of our soul and the promises of Jesus. We don't need the praise of others because we are God's beloved children. We don't need safety and financial security because we have incalculable riches in Christ. And God provides for his children better than the lilies of the field. We don't need to bury ourselves in the triviality to numb ourselves to reality because the reality is that one day we will be spending eternity marveling at the glories of God in Christ. Well, let me wrap up with a, a few few observations that will serve as applications for us. Notice that when God does a work in our lives to reorder our worship appetites, it exposes some ugly, painful, shameful stuff. And that's what happens when your ruling appetite, whatever you have worshipped previously, whatever is the king of the mountain of your heart, is knocked off its pedestal and is threatened. That's why Jesus calls out the woman's broken marriages and being with a man to whom she was not married. I'm sure there was plenty of blame to go around in those relationships with the men involved, but she had to see that whatever she was previously worshiping was destroying her. Did she seek safety in those relationships with those men? Did she seek approval? We don't really know. And there's any number of things that could have driven her to those men. So, when the Samaritan woman finally said in verse 15, Give me this water, Jesus has to raise the issue of, What were you previously worshipping? Because this is going to replace that. To receive the gift was to replace whatever false worship led her into those horrible relationships with men. There's other examples of this in the scriptures. Think about uh, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 21. Jesus sees into his heart, sees that he loves money. Tells him, well, get rid of all your money and come follow me. The man can't do that. He saw right into the man's heart and knew what he loved and worshipped. So first of all, if you are first coming to Jesus to worship him in spirit and truth, trusting him to satisfy the longings of your souls... 
notice that this will necessarily result in bringing out some ugly brokenness and sin into the light as we throw our false idols away and tear them down. Because our real problem is false worship. And we are often blind. And we try to fix it with solutions that only address our circumstances. Secondly, notice how the woman tried to sidestep the issue of the man she was living with. Technically, she told the truth, didn't she? I don't have a husband. Likewise, we are prone to excuse or conceal those idolatrous desires of our hearts when others come probing. If there are things in your life that you don't want others to know about, that you get defensive about when people raise it with you, that's probably a good place to start to figure out what false worship is taking place in your heart. For some, especially men, maybe it's pornography. You nervous about whether you properly cleared your browser history all the time? Perhaps it's cheating on your taxes and you could probably weasel your way out of it if you ever get audited, but eh, you probably won't get audited, so you're probably okay. But you don't want anybody to bring that up. But here's the thing. I could go on and on and on with all the possible false gods that could be vying for your heart's love and attention because we can take anything, even good things, I dare say especially good things, and make them the most important things. And that's when they become idolatrous and they're at the top of our hearts. But there's only one worship that will satisfy us forever and ever, and that is worshiping God the Father in spirit and truth by trusting in Jesus, our great Savior and Lord. For remember, no man can be without his God. If he have not the true God to bless and sustain him, he will have some false God to delude and to betray him. The true God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Trust in him, believe in him for the satisfaction of your heart's desires, and he will bless and sustain you. Let me close this in prayer. Jesus, we're faced with the amazing promise that we can uh, have our thirsts eternally satisfied. We ask that we would find our rest in you, that we would drink deeply in knowing you, and we need the work of your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts, changing our lives through your people and through your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for your dismissed. We'll see you next week.